0: Welcome to everyone. Um, I'm trying to get a sense of... um, Well, it'll be impossible. Uh, How many people were here for the last talk in this series? By the way, there is room up front, if any of you are... The title... uh, may need a, a bit of explanation. Uh, what does it mean to shine the light of death on life? It's a, a strange way to phrase things. Uh, essentially, these talks have been uh, about life, but we're coming to it in a way that we usually don't, at least uh, not too much in our culture, and that is through understanding aging, sickness, and death. Uh, what is this light? Why is it a light? It's that uh, when we come to know the obvious fact that each and every one of us in this room, without exception, must age, grow ill, and die, uh, as that fact, it's not a Buddhist ideology, as that fact sinks in, it, ch- it can change the way you see life dramatically. It can change the way you practice if you practice. And so, uh, since the time of the Buddha, uh, these, uh, I guess, as existential conditions that all human beings have faced, uh, has been a very central part of the Buddha's teaching. Uh, to intentionally bring up this fact, over and over again, but to do something with it. It's not simply an exercise in masochism. Um, a couple of notions are very important for us to understand the underlying dimension. Uh, why do it? That is, what is the value? I think I've hinted at it, and those of you who have come before know as we've gone over it. Um, two terms, very, um, I think, economically, explain what the Buddha is getting at. One is a term called samvega in the Pali language. And what samvega is pointing to is that uh, if and when we come to see the perishable nature of life, how fragile things are, and the obvious journey that all of us must go go through, uh, there can be a dramatic change in your priorities and how you perceive life, the ways in which we've been living, uh, can sometimes be seen in a fresh way, in a way that uh, at times we become disillusioned, frustrated, uh, even disappointed in ourselves. How could I have wasted my life living this way? Uh, the, the natural response to this is not necessarily uh, to go off into the wilderness or to become a monk or a nun, but it is to examine uh, the way in which most of us live and to see if that's how you want to live. So, essentially, it's a way of reordering our priorities, uh, getting to look and see that we have priorities, whether we know it or not. And, uh, of course, since it comes from a meditative perspective, first and foremost is that this is intended to contribute to us taking up a spiritual practice, in this case, vipassana, or whatever your practice is. I wouldn't say that this... um, Uh, putting these notions of aging, sickness, and death, uh, bringing them up to contemplate, is unique to Buddhism. I think that uh, all the great traditions have it. Um, What may be unique are the tremendous number of systematic methods and techniques to help us do it. I'm going to only hint at it, and we have hinted at a few, uh, and one main one tonight, uh, depending on how much time we have left, Posada is, goes along with It's the second concept. So the first one is as we begin to see um, the nature of life, as we begin to see how vulnerable we are, as we begin to see the inevitable journey that all of us must go through, that the body must go through, uh, that can lead to fear, to despair, uh, to resistance, to denial, uh, if we were alone. And so when we bring these up, whether it's in a talk like this or if you undertake to do the practice, uh, it needs to be balanced. And the balance comes from another emotion called pasada. And a pasada is the serene confidence that there is a a way out. Now the way out is uh, is in, of course. Uh, And what's being uh, suggested here is that if you can come to see that a life devoted uh, to external acquisitions and not just physical property but even self-images can be viewed as an, as an acquisition, notions and of <coughs> course property, uh, doesn't work. It doesn't really produce happiness or if it does, of course, by all means continue to do it. And so it's a call to look deeply within. It's a call to investigate your life. It's a call to see how you actually live. Uh, and what it's saying is that, uh, let's say you've seen some Vega, you've seen the, how can you miss it really? And tonight, uh, there's almost no way to miss death. Tonight we will start. We've been getting older and sicker, and tonight we begin to die. I know those of you who are here for the first time, I don't know if you know what you're getting into. But, uh, tonight, uh, I know that some people are home, Uh, listening to President Clinton and all the talking heads describe what's going on and why we're involved. Of course, that's part of it. There seems to always be war. It's another way. Um, So the two work together. One is uh, opening us up to the conditions that are quite real for us, and the other is uh, giving us a, a vehicle to work with aging, sickness, and death. And if you recall, those who have been here uh, for a few of the talks, uh, the framework we're using is a rather simple one. It has to do with the, whether it's legend or not, the story of the Buddha, uh, where the Buddha, after being quite protected for many years, saw an old person, a sick person, a dead person, and a contemplative. Uh, The first three were very unnerving and frightening, upsetting to the Buddha. The fourth was a serene person in meditation. Uh, These are, are in a sense, archetypes. And the fourth pointed to, of course, the practice. Um, When we bring up uh, things having to do with aging, sickness, and death, uh, there are a number of values that come from it. One is that uh, we flush out any latent fears that we might have. I don't know if might is the right word. I think that if you're a human you probably have experienced some apprehension, some anxiety about growing old, about the possibility of illness, not just catching a cold, but illness that seems to be part of this process, and then finally uh, dying. That's, uh, that's, that, that characterizes our situation. Um, why would we want to flush out any apprehension or fear? If it's latent, it means that it's there. If it's there, it's exerting some control over us. It means that it's a certain weight that we carry around. Because we, in more modern terms, repress or uh, deny things or ship things to the unconscious, uh, doesn't mean that they're uh, not affecting us. And I think probably everyone here is quite sophisticated about psychotherapy, psychoanalysis, and so forth. So it's an old idea. Well, that's a new idea. This idea is way before Freud. Uh, And so this is one value that can come up. If there is fear, it's not to uh, uh, inject it into you, but if there is fear, and for most of us there is, an apprehension, it's to bring it out, to invite it to the surface. Of course, that's why if you don't have a practice, uh, this talk may seem like an exercise in futility or... An attempt to torture you. Why would you want to bring it out unless you were able to practice with it? So there are various ways to bring it out. Some are techniques, formal techniques, which I've gone through and tonight we'll go through one uh, in some detail. But life itself uh, really pushes uh, the buttons that uh, eject these fears, that bring them to the surface. And so it's at that point, we invite them and then we use our practice, the Vipassana practice, to investigate the fears. The point being to experience our fear now so that we can be either less frightened or, in some cases, uh, not have fear about aging, about sickness and death. I don't know how many people in a given generation uh, come to that fearless quality, uh, but I, I think some do. And whatever degree Uh, of uh, however much we can take the power out of these states, it's very, very helpful. So that's one value of it. And then the other value is uh, what I mentioned, that is, as you know, you start to see that you don't have forever, and if it can get you to examine your priorities, what can come out of that in a much more familiar way would be just to appreciate life as it is. Forget about any spiritual practice. This happens to people all the time. Either something happens to them or to some family member, someone that they love, and uh, suddenly they wake up a bit. It's a wake-up call. And they begin to see how precious it is, this gift of having life, which often we take for granted. So some of what I'm saying is pretty cliché-like, right? I mean, we all kind of know this. But uh, these practices are designed Uh, to really uh, wake us up, depending on how deeply you want to go. Uh, So another benefit that can come out of it is uh, just to uh, value your life just as it is, just the ordinary moments that you spend, however you live your life, with the people that you're living with. And then finally, and of course, from the point of view of the Buddhist teaching, uh, what's really in back of the whole thing is that... uh, it's hoped that in addition to seeing the preciousness of your life, you begin to see that uh, one of the best, or no, it's not one of, it's the best, uh, way to, uh, to express that, to manifest that, is to, um, to appreciate life, is to take up a spiritual practice uh, with some sincerity and some depth. And so that's what these... Reflections are designed to do. Um, Let's review very, very quickly where we've been. Um, We talked about aging, and uh, you can intentionally remind yourself of your age. You can take that on as a kind of cultivated practice, although uh, it's not necessary because very often life itself reminds us, doesn't it? You just have to look in the mirror or the way we're treated by people or we start to see certain of our capacities or functions change. We know that we're changing, we know that we're growing older. Now uh, <clears throat> the normal response to that are bad jokes, denial, uh, fighting it, doing everything we can uh, to uh, modify the body, using surgery, clothing, whatever it takes to deny Uh, this natural process. There's nothing weird about it. It's not unusual. Everything that is born ages, matures, and then uh, ends. Everything. So, it's just another expression of the law of impermanence. Um, The body ages. That's normal. This physical body Uh, is going through a process that has nothing to do with the images that we have, or our ideology, or what we want. And if we're attached to the body being a certain way, we're bound to suffer a great deal. And so practice here is an attempt to use the aging process itself to free us from the attachment to the body, from the attachment to the body as a source of identification, one where we identify with the body and it's a main source of selfing, of creating a sense of the self. So all that's happening is a natural process, but there's a lot of suffering that goes on as the implications of the aging of the body become clear to the mind. And if the mind uh, doesn't investigate, doesn't learn how to uh, relate in in a way that has some wisdom to this process, there will be much more suffering, of course. The whole point of wisdom is... It's the art of living happily. And so uh, the attitude of the yogi is very different. Our attitude, this is a a practitioner, uh, is we take the materials that have to do with aging, and they're very rich. And rather than seeing it as some kind of curse or bad news, we practice with it, including if we think it is bad news and a curse. Maybe you can't stop having uh, the reaction that you have, but you can relate to it in all kinds of ways. And so we went through that in some detail, uh, bringing awareness to the fear, to the apprehension, uh, to the resistance, and so forth, uh, seeing uh, the pride that we can have in being young, uh, the way in which we're oblivious to certain things. And, uh, and then it spills over into health. Health is uh, related to it. And we did the same thing with, age, with sickness, which, of course, has an even worse press, Now, no one's saying that it's wonderful to get sick. That isn't what's being said. But the Buddha, over and over again, is saying that if you do get sick, then you have a choice. You can uh, kind of uh, whine away in your sickness. You can veg out, using our present-day way of talking about things, obliterate yourself for those days and relax a bit. Or you, you can use the very materials, the very the sensations, the emotions that are aroused, the, the way the body is, uh, as the materials to practice with. They become d- dharmic materials for practice. And it's a totally different attitude. You turn your illness into a medicine, but it's a spiritual medicine. Any of these states, like aging, like sickness, they're bound to show you the ways of the self, of the ego. They have to. I mean, they reveal... Uh, uh, exactly what it is that's suffering so much. And so uh, we went through that in, in some detail as to how to use our Vipassana practice uh, during those occasions when we're, when we're ill. And uh, we pointed out that you're already, those who have a practice, you're already doing this practice. Anytime you get, let's say, a pain in your body while sitting, doing a retreat, and you know, many of you know what to do. You know how to practice with it. Uh, in principle, it's the very same thing when you get ill. And as was pointed out last time, it's also the best preparation or one of, it's one very excellent preparation for when we're dying, which at some point, I mean, sometimes death just comes. Uh, but many of us it, uh, may be involved in a process where it takes some time. Um, in this sense, we're getting in shape. It's a very, very different attitude. Woody Allen said, uh, I've forgotten which film, uh, it's not that I'm afraid of dying, it's just that I don't want to be there when it happens. Okay. The Buddha's attitude is just the opposite. It's saying, I am afraid of dying, and I do want to be there when it happens. Just like Socrates. Socrates, that's a perfect vipassana practice. Just uh, beautifully and clearly, and remember describing uh, his body as it's uh, entering into death. Now, he couldn't have done that unless he had a lifetime of some kind of practice. Obviously, you don't suddenly decide, I think I'm going to observe how I die. I don't think the normal mind is able to, to handle that kind of energy. Um, so, that's where we've been, and now we come to, to death. Finally, I think they're all about death. You know, they're all sort of moving in that direction. Death in our culture—I think it's changing—has been a taboo. First, it was sex. Now we're incredibly open about sex, and we've been very reticent about death, also about aging and sickness. And or even now, it is becoming more open. Often, it seems to be a war against these states. Uh, There's an anti-aging programs, and uh, there's actually a section, a research section of anti-aging, as if. I don't know, as if it's the Serbs or something. I don't know, it's some kind of war that we're involved in. Uh, aging is a natural process, and it's not that you can't do certain things to delay it, to live a, a healthier life, and we hinted at some of that. But this attitude is rather different, because no matter how much you delay it, the time comes where, uh, where you will uh, die. <laughs> uh, and more and more, it is becoming something... Uh, that we can talk about, even in the Dharma scene. Uh, when uh, I, I think I'm a member of the first generation that went over to Asia and brought back the teachings, and we left a lot of things over there. We took back what we liked, you know, what feels good, like meditation. We kind of brought back the ethical piece, but you know, it's something you just rattle off at the beginning of a retreat and then uh, essentially uh, people had graduated from drugs and just wanted a, a natural way to continue their drug career.
1: <laughs>
0: and so we left ethics, and we also left some of these meditations, like uh, because th- these are not esoteric in the Buddhist teaching. Uh, they're, and it's not just for monks and nuns. The way people do it, I, I've, I've seen it. I've, I've done it with guidance from, some, from a few very good teachers. Um, Why don't I uh, tell you my first... Uh, I've, I've had uh, experience uh, with death before I uh, came to Dharma in, in the military. I was in the army for two years, uh, and I definitely did see death, and some of it up close. It was not a war, it was during maneuvers, but the people died just the same, and one of them was someone I knew. Uh, not a natural death, it was a, a death that came out of practicing war. Um, And that affected me. I'd rather not go into that uh, too much because I think it would take us off course. But I had one teacher, uh, uh, an Indian teacher, uh, and one day I was uh, studying with him and a corpse became available. Uh, I want to save us time because I see what we have and I'd like to really uh, go as much as I can into this this evening. Um, The people in the village didn't want to look at this didn't want to handle the corpse for some religious reason why they couldn't until a priest from it, from this person the, the corpse had been floating in the bay for some time and was washed up quite bloated and uh, didn't smell so good etc. Blue. Uh, and so we were not from this village and they asked us if we would if we would stay with the corpse and the body was in a big uh, sort of like a casket packed in ice and so uh, my teacher, this was many years ago, almost 30 years ago, uh, was uh, quite excited, uh, kind of pulled me out of what I was doing. I was meditating. I thought that's what we're supposed to do. And he just said, oh, no, no, drop that. You know, we have something much more valuable to do than you can sit anytime. time. And when I saw what he was getting me into, I must admit, I was apprehensive, angry, and frightened. Uh, and all we did was we sat through the entire evening with his body in front of us. He would sit there and from time to time he would say, draw me out, you know, like, how is it for you right now? Of course, he could see, but he got me to describe. And if I was vague, he would persist and get me to be very, very concrete about whatever I was going through. And I went through quite a range from slight nausea to revulsion to anger at him. Uh, to wondering what the point was, and he didn't tell me what the point was. He just kept bringing me back to the moment and to see what this corpse was bringing up in me. And so in that sense, when anyone dies, they're our teacher from from the point of view of wisdom, if you're willing to learn, because what they are teaching us is that you must die. Each one of us must die. I don't think for the most part we've gotten that. We know it, but we don't really know it. Uh, and so that evening it uh, was quite a, uh, an evolution in terms of an emotional evolution, uh, finally coming to the point where uh, I could uh, rest with what was going on in some way, using the breath, using mindfulness, the same practice that you know. Those of you who come here know all too well. And I did see the value of it it was and then later on, of course he, if I didn't, he drilled it into my head. Um, Shortly thereafter, I started to take up some of these practices. Uh, There are formal meditations, and let me tell you how you, uh, the kinds of practices that make up what is called Marana Sati. Sati means mindfulness, and Marana means death. It's mindfulness of death. Uh, Some are cultivated, they're reflections. Uh, You kind of, for example, the thought, I must die, death is, in, or death is inevitable. You, you take up a thought like that. Hmm. I must die, and I'll go through specific ones, uh, uh, an ancient method that is still used to this day in a few moments. You take that up, and you turn that thought over in your mind. Now, typically it's best done if the mind is concentrated to some degree, uh, and then you bring that in, and it, so it's got some of our, what is familiar to most of us of our practice, in that the mind is, is attentive, but it also is a skillful use of the thought process. You repeat the thoughts, and a lot of freedom and creativity is allowed. Uh, but there are a whole host of reflections. Literally, almost anything can serve as a reflection to remind you of aging, sickness, and death. Uh, you can just use nature. Just take a look at nature. But I wanted to read a few to you. This comes from the seventh Dalai Lama. The present one is the 13th. And it's called Meditations on the Way of Impermanence. Uh, I'm not going to go through all of them, but just to give you a a sense of how uh, familiar events that happen in life can be taken up Uh, as a a reflective reflective activity and made into a, a spiritual endeavor. In spring, the season of warmth and growth, the stalks of the crops were turquoise green. Now, autumn's end, the fields lie naked and parched. My mind turns to the thoughts of my death. On each branch of the trees in my garden hang clusters of fruit, swelling and ripe. In the end, not one piece will remain. My mind turns to the thoughts of my death. From behind the peaks of Mount Potala, the sun rose like an umbrella into the sky. Now it has gone, fallen behind the western ranges. My mind turns to thoughts of my death. In the belly of the vast plateau below me, the campfires of visiting traders glow like stars. But tomorrow they depart, leaving only refuse. My mind turns to thoughts of my death. When warm summer days, the earth thronging with life, the minds of the people are lost in gaiety. Suddenly the cold winter wind crashes them down. My mind turns to the thoughts of my death. A young man with teeth for the future, with plans for months and years ahead, died, leaving but scant traces. Where is he now? Gone. My mind turns to the thoughts of my death. Here's one that I I thought of. I remember this poem because of what's going on in Serbia. Spirits were high with expectations this morning as the men discussed subduing enemies and protecting the land. Now with nights coming, birds and dogs chew their corpses who believe that they themselves would die today. There's quite a few of of these. Um, Essentially, uh, life is the teacher. And uh, what is asked for, of course, is that we're a willing student. I know that when my father died, Uh, His last gift to me was that he reminded me of my own uh, time on this earth that I don't have forever. And it was the very last teaching. He's given me many teachings, but that was the very last one. Not that he intended to. It's just that the act is the teacher. But only if you see it that way. Only if you uh, take it up and extract some significance from it. Now, uh, again, remember that we're using this not just to get depressed, to depress ourselves, uh, but to live a life that's more real. Because if it's true that there is aging, that there is sickness, that there is death, that it's a scientifically verifiable fa- a fact, then if you're not living in accordance with that, how could you not suffer a lot? It's what we call delusion in the Buddhist teaching. We're not living uh, in terms of the way things are. And so, Wisdom and sanity is to clearly see the way things are. And at first, the effect that it may have is to bring you down, to sober you up, or to uh, be discouraging. But of course, that's not the intent, and that's where uh, pasada, if you remember that emotion, comes in, where it's not that you just leave it that way, you practice with it. And uh, through practicing with it, uh, you can break through these, um, these reactions that we have to them and come more and more deeply to awakening. It moves you in the direction of where the whole practice is going. Now, for those of you who know the Four Noble Truths, I see aging, sickness, and death as just another expression of that teaching. Only it's, these are a signal of events. They're very, very crucial events and events that we don't usually examine in this way. In the Four Noble Truths, those of you who know it, which is the core of the Buddhist teaching, and all the Buddhist schools agree on that. It's one of the few things that they all do agree on. The first noble truth is that there is suffering in life. Also obvious. A lot of the Buddhist teaching is very simple, very obvious. That's why it's powerful. You hear it. Uh, the the Uh, What's being asked of us is is that when we're suffering, to know it. The second noble truth is that the suffering is caused by craving and attachment. We typically want things to be a certain way. Uh, If you want to be young forever, if you want to never be sick, if you want to live forever, uh, I think you're going to suffer a bit. So that uh, here's where the fourth noble truth, the path, comes in. And that's our practice, bringing mindfulness, concentration, insight, and so forth to bear. And as you examine uh, these instances of suffering, because if you are not living in accordance with the way things are, you're going to suffer. Uh, yet the third noble truth, which I haven't mentioned yet, is cessation. It's saying there is an end to this suffering. Okay. Um, that's why the first noble truth, or the truth of dukkha, of suffering, is considered a gateway to liberation. If you you stop at the First Noble Truth, as many writers have, and think Buddhism is pessimistic, uh, you haven't finished the the journey. It's like you read one chapter of a book and then you conclude that's what the whole book is about. It's only the first chapter. And why is it a gateway to liberation? Because if you turn things around, and rather than either deny, repress, or drown in your suffering, and here I'm referring to the suffering that comes about, because we, the body must age, uh, if, you, if you deny that you're going to suffer, but if you investigate it then all of that energy that's held captive in craving and attachment is liberated. I don't know, some of you are in my age range, it isn't all bad news. I personally don't find it all bad news at all. A lot of incredibly idiotic trivia falls away as you get older. <laughs> You know, uh, but of course it depends on how you're living. I'm not making a virtue of getting older. It doesn't mean that the more gray hair you have, the wiser you are. Of course that's ridiculous, but potentially you could be if you're using your life to learn as you go along. Okay, um, I have a hunch we're not going to be able to finish this tonight, but we'll get it started. Um, I'd like to begin a a classical teaching from a great Indian sage named Atisha. He had these nine ways of looking at death. This is about death. But before I do, um, a friend reminded me of uh, a a chapter in the the Tao Te Ching, uh, which I read today. uh, I hadn't read this in a long time. And I think it's one of the most beautiful and concise Uh, statements of what we're talking about, of what is being talked about. It's verse 76. It says, Humans are born soft and flexible. In death they become stiff and hard. Plants are born, born soft and pliable. When dead they become brittle and dry. Therefore those who are stiff and rigid become disciples of death while those who are soft and yielding become disciples of life. The hard and stiff break, the soft and supple triumph." Um, Pretty beautiful. Um, What all these teachings are saying is, of course, the way the body goes, it must uh, stiffen, to use that metaphor. But then the question is, does the mind have to stiffen along with the body? And the very clear and loud answer of the Buddha is, of course not. So meditation is a way of keeping the mind fresh and, in a sense, ageless. Awareness has no age. And as more and more you come to tap awareness and even live there, uh, you're living in in something that's timeless. It has no weight. It's mysterious. It's an extraordinary mystery, what this awareness is. Uh, I don't know if you've seen that yet. Where is it? What is it? And also it's so valuable. So, uh, the theme going through all of the Buddhist teachings on death awareness is that what happens to the body is inevitable, but it doesn't follow that the mind has to go along with the body. The body may uh, grow ill, but the mind doesn't have to grow ill. The body may age, but the mind doesn't have to. And actually, of course, this is a really profound statement, we won't get to it tonight, the body has to die, but we don't have to die. Now, we is not your personality. It's not like Larry's going to live forever. It doesn't mean that. Okay. Um, what I'd like to do is to, uh, to get us started tonight uh, on these, uh, This it's a, a death awareness practice outline that, uh, oh, I think it must have been about seven or 800 years ago, Atisha put forward. Uh, and what he did is he sort of uh, in a very concise way, organized, oh, I can't think of anything that the Buddha talked about all these things, but scattered throughout different sermons. And uh, Atisha uh, laid them out in such a way that uh, you can actually practice with them. It's very convenient and systematic, and many people at the center have already been, have used this outline. Um, there are nine reflections By the way, uh, uh, I think I I left something out. When I mentioned reflection as one way, that is, where you intentionally think about something, uh, or like in that poem, another way is just by living naturally, uh, fear of death, fear of aging, fear of sickness, it comes up. And for me personally, that has been the most powerful. I've done uh, lots of cultivated formal practice, death awareness practice. But... uh, The deepest has come when my father died, when my mother died, and so forth. Uh, And events not quite as dramatic, where it brings something up. You're touched, by for some way, and you apply the practice right in that moment. It doesn't have to happen on a cushion. Very often it doesn't. And whether it's called grieving, or whatever you call it, there are are many opportunities in life for us to, to become more sensitive, Everything is being said here, uh, and it's not. As, it doesn't require a formal meditation. It requires an interest, sensitivity, and being able to discern the significance of what's happening for you. It's uh, it's about us. The bell is tolling for us. Okay. Um, these uh, uh, this death awareness uh, practice outline uh, has nine contemplations, and they're in three sets of three. Um, a way to work with them, there's no hard and fast way. One is, uh, is to move down uh, all, uh, all nine. You take them, one way is, uh, and this is a classical way of practicing with it, you take up number one and you work with it. Uh, then you take up two and three and so forth over a period of time, depending on your interest, how much time you have available and so forth. But there's a lot of room for creativity here. So that uh, other ways of working with it, let's say sometimes you only have 5 or 10 minutes, you can just go through all 9, just uh, a quick reflection, because they're all really about the same thing from a slightly different angle. They're different doors into the same teaching. Uh, One way of working, it's a way that I've worked for a number of years, is that you take up one and you work with it intensively, and then at the end of the session, well, you start off a session typically. Again, it's up to you. Uh, Typically by calming and steadying the mind, whether you use the breath or metta, or some of you work with a mantra, however you do it, uh, bring the mind to as calm and steady a place as you can. We're not going to do a guided meditation here, although we have done it in the practice groups. I'm just going to give you a a sample of it. Um, When the mind is more calm and steady, then it's more fit to to arouse uh, the feelings that can, can be associated with these reflections. And what you then do is you practice with what, with what is brought up. You may find fear. You may find resistance. You may find denial, avoidance. They're all valuable. It's not that you're supposed to have a particular response. Uh, what it is is the phrase, as you'll hear it, and I'll suggest ways of putting life into the phrase, uh, it's an invitation for certain emotions to come up certain attitudes. And when they do, then the art is practicing with it in the ways that most of you probably are familiar. You become mindful of it. For example, you see it. You see it arise and pass away. You see it's impermanent. Those who've been practicing for a while, it's empty nature. And so little by little, you start to decondition yourself from the fears that you have. The deconditioning comes from seeing the conditioning. You say, death? Oh my God. It's a response, a reaction. Okay, let's start with the first set of three called the inevitability of death. And the first one is, and this is a reflection, everyone has to die. Hmm. Everyone has to die. And if you were practicing with that, you might begin uh, by calming the mind and then bringing up that thought. Everyone has to die. And then hearing what you're saying, hearing what you're thinking, seeing what that thought does. Um, If your mind has some steadiness, some calm, you mix your samadhi in with that notion. And uh, what comes up is what comes up. But that uh, traditionally, uh, anything can be used uh, to help you uh, arouse this feeling of inevitability. We're on the first one right now. For example, one way is to reflect on people who already have died. Uh, It's especially helpful if, let's say, they are powerful and famous, uh, great athletes, uh, famous generals. Uh, It's different for each one of us. Uh, For me, it was uh, my first teacher of these things, an Indian teacher named Krishnamurti. And uh, if any of you heard him, ever heard him uh, teach, he was on fire. I mean, he was just uh, from another planet or something. There was just so much energy passing through him. He was just a slight, small man. But sometimes he seemed to be about 10 feet tall. It wasn't his physical nature. So there was a certain power, and it was uh, very difficult for me to conceive of him being dead. But he is. He died. He died uh, just shy of 91. But he did die. Uh, Does someone come to mind for you? Some uh, extraordinary Olympic athlete. Or it could be a relative or a historical figure, or a movie actor, or a movie actress. Uh, The point is, you kind of um, use it to prime the pump, uh, and our biographies are all different, and so uh, after a while you become, there's room for creativity here. I'll give you an example. Uh, Some years ago, I was teaching, we have a practice group that's on this subject, Uh, we have had it once a year, and uh, we were going through that, and then it was over. It was an evening, just like this. And I went upstairs, and to relax a bit, I turned on the TV, and there was an old film with uh, Clark Gable and Carol Lombard. I don't know if you've heard of her. Yeah. They were married, I, I believe. And um, I, I, it was on my mind, because I had just been going over these materials for two hours, Our uh, practice groups are that long, and I looked at it. And I was in the movie, you know, si- sipping a cup of tea. Uh, and I already knew the film. I've forgotten the name of it now. And not only did I know uh, those two, and there was Clark Gable, virile, and uh, Carol Lombard, very sensual and seductive and uh, flirtatious and funny. And, uh, and I knew the smaller bit part players. And, um, and I knew who uh, the screenplay, who wrote the sc- screenplay. Uh, I knew a lot about it. And then suddenly it hit me that absolutely everyone in this film is dead, without exception. They're dead. every bit player is dead. Uh, this was from the 30's. Uh, the people who sold the popcorn that night, they're probably dead too. The musicians uh, stunt, whatever it is. they were all dead. And it was this uh, unusual opportunity to use so you see, uh, popular culture is not all a waste of time. you can. Turn around especially by the way, it's especially good in uh, Hollywood films are very good in documenting how not to live I mean, they show you over and over again not just Hollywood a lot of films how not to live. They show you how to you want suffering. Here's the way to assemble it You know, uh, you do this this and that otherwise it wouldn't be an interesting film and there's all kinds of just stupidities and vanities and egomaniacs and uh, and we love it We just can't have enough of it including me, you know. So, um, here I was, I was watching it, the inevitability, sort of, here's Clark Gable, and you see him with such vitality and strong energy, and where is Clark Gable today, and so forth. And so I used it as a reflection. Now, clearly, I wasn't using it as a typical theater goer would see a movie. If everyone did this, there'd be no Academy Awards, there'd be nothing. but this time i use it that way i'm not saying you should use a film this way all the time this one just happened spontaneously and then i just picked up on it and i just used it uh to understand that everyone has to die even clock gable especially clock everyone has to die and uh it helped and then you can take up other figures uh, and they're other ways to do it and of course it's the only limit being your own creativity Uh, can you imagine uh, you can reflect on facts like this how many people already have died just on planet earth maybe there's no other life anywhere else I I doubt that but let's say there isn't Uh, can you imagine how many humans just like us you know with arms and legs and emotions and who have children and who love each other and hate each other and kill each other and uh, they go through the ages over and over. I mean, it's been going on for quite a while. Uh, do you think that we're somehow going to be exempt? I don't think so. Or I've, a reflection that's helped me, here's one way in which death awareness can can be used intentionally. Uh, anytime I find myself, I can't say anytime, but a lot of times when I... Find myself falling into a smallness of mind, a pettiness. Uh, Why you said you were going to do this? Uh, Or somebody is not up to snuff, or they're a little bit cruel, or uh, something, some unsatisfying characteristic, uh, negative. If you just look at them and understand that we're comrades in aging, sickness, and death, uh, somehow it takes, it puts things in perspective. Uh, the Buddha once met a, uh, once a, uh, a mother whose child died. There are a couple of these stories, one many of you know and one you don't know, probably. Uh, a Jewish rabbi told me this one. I checked it out. He was right. It, it, it is in the Buddhist teaching. Um, the mother was in total despair, and she went to the Buddha, and uh, she just uh, was inconsolable. And so he said, uh, get a glass of water and, and some salt, a lot of salt. So she did. She came back with water and salt. He said, now put a, a lot of salt in the glass of water. And she did. And he said, now drink it. And she drank it. And, of course, she spit it out. It was unbearable. She couldn't drink it. And he said, now take the, the salt and go down to the river and put it in the river and drink the water from the river. And she did that. Of course, it was quite sweet and delicious. Uh, you put things in a bigger context. Uh, their significance changes. Uh, for example, if all the characters, all of them, I'm not favoring it, you know, I don't have any political predisposition here, who are involved in today's drama in the Balkans, if they all paused and reflected, you know, what are we trying to kill each other for? We're going to be dead anyway. Uh, why are we hurrying things? If you don't like uh, Serbians, don't worry, they're going to die. Just It's going to take a while. Oh, you don't like uh, ours? Well, they're going to go too. Why don't we enjoy our life? We're all going to fall away. But no, we have absolute identifications with particular ethnic groups or religions or ages or conditions of the body, anything or ideas that, that, uh, that are important to us. Ideologies. How many people have died because of ideologies? More than cancer, I assure you. I can't assure you, but I think a lot anyway. Um, so you take that in. Everyone has to die, and the limits of how useful it can be for you are really the limits of your willingness to to practice with it and to see where it takes you. Uh, there's a lot of room for those of you who say, uh, you know, you talk about the silent mind a lot. My mind is thinking, thinking, thinking. Okay, here's one where you can use thinking. Uh, you can kind of use it in a skillful way use it to help free yourself by thinking certain kinds of thoughts that uh, have some truth in them Um, the second one our lifespan is decreasing continuously these are all obvious facts right Uh, Atisha who drafted this outline, he would watch the dripping of water and just drop by drop. That's literally what's happening. At the time of the Buddha, uh, I think it was Ananda, and uh, the Buddha gave Ananda a meditation, which we've used here. I think for, for some people it's been the most helpful one. It's so simple. You know, when we walk with the breath, it's primarily to calm and steady the mind. But you can also, in one breath, contemplate the breathing in a different way and suddenly it becomes maranasati, a death awareness. That is, when you begin to reflect on the fact that uh, you don't have an endless number of breaths, that you breathe in and you breathe out and you're, you're alive in that moment and that should you breathe out and then you don't breathe in, uh, we call that death. And so you, we are literally hanging by a breath And so the very same breath that you use to calm yourself, to bring a certain uh, joy into the heart so that you can practice vipassana, uh, can be vipassana right away because you uh, are seeing it uh, pointing to the impermanent nature of us. And so you're with it breath by breath. And of course, you can, uh, the ticking of the clock, the breaths unfolding in, out, in, out, water dripping, uh, however you want to look at it. Wherever you look, uh, or as uh, one of the Seventh Dalai Lama, the same one put it, he said it's, it's like an athlete, a highly trained athlete, running to the end of uh, the track. Uh, we're running in one direction and one direction only. Now, I'm not saying this to be morbid. Uh, I'm saying it to wake us all up. Uh, if you find it morbid, And this meditation is not for everyone all the time. If it's a particular time in your life that there's a lot of sadness, a lot of unhappiness, some depression, perhaps a big loss, this may not be what you need. You might need to bring some gladness into the heart, some joy. Uh, If you haven't been practicing much, uh, I wouldn't uh, suggest doing this because you're liable to bring things up and then not be able to practice with them. And Uh, not do yourself a good turn. Um, So, our lifespan is decreasing continuously, as is this talk. (laughs) Uh, Okay, you can see they're similar. Everyone has to die. Everyone on this planet, planet Earth, everyone who's alive right now, without exception, I don't know how many years it's going to take, there'll be no one left. No one. not Or no animals or fish either. It's just, it's just the way things are. Uh, I can't help it. Uh, the truth is that this is the Titanic. Planet Earth is. It's not like the Titanic is a boat that you get on that sinks. Uh, the planet Earth is the Titanic. We're all dancing and, uh, you know, putting on our outfits and going to the ballroom and, you know, the planet, the boat is going down. Now... <laughs> The, the, the practice is uh, you have some time we don't know how long that comes up subsequent ones we don't know it's uncertain uh, so what are you going to do with your time it's not uh, a message of despair life sucks or anything like that quite the contrary but of course it, it requires that you uh, look at it uh, for, with some wisdom I think I'm going to stop here and next time we'll pick up from where I left off uh, I want to give you a feeling for how of moving through these nine. Uh, those of you who are interested can can practice with it, but even if you don't want to, there's something useful in these reflections. People report that. Uh, so I think I'm going to stop now, and uh, some of you may wish to leave and go hear what Clinton said about why we're there. Uh, and those of you... Uh, if you want to stretch and move about, now, if you want to stay, uh, you don't have to stay. You can stay for as long as you want. If, to me, it's it's not rude if you need to get up in 10 or 15 minutes while while we're having question and answer. It's fine with me. So, uh, those of you who have to leave, it would be a good time to do it now. One family, and I just like you use whatever is good and uh, helps us, but... It's not the seven, yeah. the, the, same, the one that you get in every Tibetan book. Right. Uh, yeah, and I don't know where to tell you to... Uh, there are t- I've given talks on it in the past. There may be some tapes, of, and there may, it's in some books, but I, I can't remember where they are right now. Um, anything we can talk over together? Anything that was said tonight? Uh, bring up something that you'd like to talk about? keeping in mind that my frame of reference is really how to practice with this. I'm not an expert on aging, sickness, and death. Anyone who sets themselves up that way is a fool. Uh, These are the great challenges that we all face. But I have practiced with it for a while, and I can share with you my mistakes and what I've learned. And I've also listened to a fair number of people uh, who also have practiced with it, and I've learned from what they've learned. Please. Well, but you see, those are just words. Think about uh, uh, the essence of our practice of insight meditation. There are a number of skills involved, but let's say the most basic one is to be aware of your experience with equanimity. That means it's not thinking. It's to be aware. Let's say you. Let's say this brings up some fear. Uh, Death is inevitable. I must die. I must die. Death is inevitable. Suddenly, uh, you can feel the heart start to beat, your pulse changes. You, there's fear. It comes up. Uh, the heart of our practice would be awareness with equanimity. And equanimity means that you're not judging what's come up. You're not for or against it. You're not grasping onto it, nor are you pushing it away. But rather, you're just observing the, uh, the actual energy of fear in the body or it could be in the mind, but to begin with, that's hard for most people. Uh, so it's, um, the heart of Vipassana practice is what is sometimes called mindfulness. I prefer awareness to mindfulness. So that seems to imply you're in your head, you're in your mind. Whereas awareness is a more general thing. But th- does that make any, is that a, a new idea or do you ha- have some sense? Yeah. Now, w- the reflections that I'm referring to are a little bit different. They're a kind of a hybrid. They're bringing a little of both together. That it is a skillful use of thought. That's what I've been saying. You're reflecting. You use your thinking mind in a reflective way. You take it inside, you turn it over, and you extract some significance from it. You've already done that countless times in your life. It's just you'd be doing it with this, and it's about you. But then when it, it's bound to bring something up if you keep doing it. And then when it comes up, then you... You practice with it the way you' would practice with whatever comes up in your meditation. I can't give you a thumbnail, Vipassana course and you know so, but is that enough to help you understand? Yeah But uh, finally, it's not, a, it's not thinking at all. It's not thinking at all. Um, let me point out uh, uh, it includes thinking, but in this way. When you start to examine, let's say, fear of dying, which can come up. It's not unusual, of course. It can come up naturally. It can come up by invitation. Uh, when you look carefully at it, and our practice is the careful looking at our experience, listening to our experience, examining our experience, not thinking about it, examining. What you see is that it isn't at in that moment. It's not death that you're afraid of. It's the idea of your future death that you're afraid of, because in that moment, you're fine. You can be very safe and feel healthy, and you can be quite young. And there's nothing around that... So of course, you can die when you, as soon as you leave here. It's uncertain. But So what the fear of is that the mind has uh, made up a future, which we do know will come. But it's, uh, it, it's the ground out of which that fear has grown, the soil out of which it's grown, is in thinking. It's not that in that moment... Uh, You're actually dying. Now the time will come where you will actually be dying, you know, unless it happens abruptly. And then that will be a moment just like this moment, where you're in a hospital or you're at home or wherever it happens, and you're breathing in a certain way, and your mind is a certain way, and uh, the body feels a certain way, and there are people around or they're not around, and it's hot or it's not hot. Uh, It's a real piece of life, and you are in the process of dying. But a lot of the fear is not of the actual dying. It's the idea that we're going to die. And, of course, it's the ego that is terrified of not being around anymore. So uh, by paying attention to the sensations in the body of fear and seeing them come and go, it becomes easier to see how much they were aroused by thoughts. And that once you see that, it falls away. And so does the fear. And suddenly you feel <coughs> some of the strength is taken out of the fear as you understand it. Insight is, means understanding, wisdom. Okay, but the tool, the main tool for wisdom is clear seeing, attention. If I could leave you with an image, it's like a, a clear mirror that just reflects what's there. Equanimity is that. It's not for or against what it sees or listens to. It's just right there and attentive. That's the foundation of our practice. If you don't learn how to do that then it's all just going to be just in our heads. We're just going to just keep reading and thinking and talking and uh, it's of limited value. If you're feeling glum because of this talk tonight some of you look a little... uh, examine that. Uh, I wish we had more time because you're supposed to not end it that way, and I, I don't know what to do. Maybe I'll stand on my head or something. <laughs> yeah, please. Um, I think why
1: I feel a little wrong is that um, I've to practice for uh-huh. door, and uh many And I often
2: let in things that I'm afraid to let
1: in. I'm afraid it was
2: just a
1: pleasure,
0: you know, just it well, Yes. Uh, the truth is that unless you do face some of the uh, painful things in your life, you won't get that peace, harmony, and joy. It'll just be a romantic ideology, and it'll fall, it'll fall apart eventually, because it won't be solid. I agree with you. The practice is about that. But if you're avoiding, I don't mean you, if, you know what I don't mean to single you out, if you're studiously avoiding, this is not just about feeling good. Wisdom is not just another way uh, to get good feelings oh, mm, feels good. They, good feelings come. But if you attach to good feelings, what happens when you don't have them? Do you have good feelings all the time? Do you? I, of course not. You're human. So then those times when you don't are as valuable, and in some ways more valuable, if you, as you learn how to practice with them. Now, if you're able to practice with whatever is there, we're not against good feelings. When they come, by all means, experience them. But if you're invested in kind of constantly trying to dredge up good feelings and avoiding anything that might point in a different direction, uh, that's a hard way to go through life. It, it, first of all, it's tiring. And you're vulnerable because you're, anything is threatening. Now, the truth is there, uh, there is pain in life. There are some obvious facts. You know, I don't have to beat this over the head, beat you over the head, whatever the cliche is. Um... So the practice would include those good feelings, but even uh, if this is what the equanimity was, the equanimity is being able to be aware of whatever is there. And one of the most important skills is learning how to become comfortable with discomfort, how to not be afraid of fear, how to not be tyrannized by any of the moods that come through the mind. Now that takes you to a deeper place, or otherwise you're spending your life between plus and minus. good, you know. Good feelings, not good feelings. Good feelings, not... And the oscillations that it goes through. People smile at you, you're happy. They frown at you, you're unhappy. You get a raise, you're happy. You get fired, you're miserable. And it just these oscillations. Okay. Now, as you start to examine the full range of human experience, that takes you to a place that's beyond plus and minus. And that's the whole point. It's another dimension will open up, and that's what all spiritual life is about. It's beyond thought it's beyond your conditioning and so forth um, this practice that's what I've been trying to say is not uh, uh, it's not uh, designed to, to, be, to bring you down uh, although it can have that effect but then uh, see let's say for the moment assume you felt a little bit glum because of it is that, is that fair to say okay, okay. Uh, beautiful see now you don't see it that way I know you don't, I understand, but if you keep coming here, we'll beat it into your head, you know. Okay. So the day will come when the glumness will come up, and it's sort of like, wonderful, here's glumness, Let's, let me become aware of that. Now, can you see how, if, if you can be comfortable enough to examine the glumness, that means glumness is a, an actual fact that a human feels. It's in the body, it's a heaviness, whatever, you know. It's not the idea, it's not the word glumness, it would be that direct attentiveness to how you're feeling. And if you start uh, doing that, uh, something happens to it. Awareness is an energy, and what it touches, it transforms. Okay. So uh, as you get free of glumness, because if you don't want to be glum, then you're attached to it. You know, you're know, you attached negatively. Like, I, I don't want that. The other, I do want. So we spend a lot of our life pushing and grabbing. Uh, so this practice... Great that it came up, but that's what I meant. Now, if you're not going to practice with it, then it's better you don't get involved in this stuff because then it is kind of uh, leading you in a direction that's not going to be so useful for you. And there are times not to do it. There are times to do it. It's not the only practice to do It's one practice, a very useful one. In fact, a commitment to practice doesn't only come from this. Uh, Finally, if you don't taste the fruit of practice, that is, not take my word for it, or the Buddha, or whoever, uh, but if you don't actually, from your own meditative life, start experiencing real, juicy fruit from the meditation, uh, why would you want to keep doing it? Okay, so that finally, uh, it's uh, reflecting on aging, sickness, and death helps helps us uh, free ourselves from an area that's very uh, conflicted and problematic for most of us, But as And it's designed to get you to practice with more intensity. Once you practice with more intensity, you're more likely to experience the fruit of practice, and then on your own you'll want to do it, not as a discipline. You know, I sit from 7 to 8 every morning. I go to CIMC, and, you know, I'm glad it's there because I have the sangha, and I sit, but it's like cod liver oil, you know. (laughs) Okay, to begin with, maybe it has to be cod liver oil. But it won't last if it just keeps being cod liver oil, even if you put peppermint flavor. We know, it's cod liver oil. But if you start to experience the joy of practice then you want to do it the way you want good food or uh, to take a shower when you're hot or, you know, anything else that's valuable. So it's for you to decide. I'm not trying to say everyone has to become a big death awareness person. It's up to you. <laughs> Bad enough, I'm... No, I mean, it's wonderful, I yeah. <laughs> do. I'm doing it for all of you. I'm not Jesus. Yeah.
1: Please. <laughs> uh, did, did you speak about the, the many deaths
2: that we experience as we go through our lives? Nope. I mean, you're speaking of the terminal aspect of, 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 of physical life? Yes. But once I am in a I have begun to realize the death of aspects of myself in my life. Yes. Um,
0: Yes, absolutely. For example... And pain is in there too. Pain? Okay. Yes, the reason you're asking the question is because there's some suffering involved. Mm. The reason the Buddhist teaching exists is because there's suffering involved. So, yes, it is designed to help you okay. in the following way. Um, as we age... Uh, let's say you have your image of yourself, and I went into this last week at my own expense, not last week, last time, whenever that was, uh, of someone getting up and giving me a seat on the T. Okay, you remember. Okay, and, uh, I, you know, it was a rite of passage for me. <laughs> Suddenly I, I went from being, uh, you know, I don't know, a, an All-American athlete or something to a senior citizen, you know, just sort of like, uh, you know, just barely feeling my way through life. Pop you know old timer you know uh, so it was a shock because i didn 't know I had an image of myself as I mean I know my age and i'd be happy to tell you what it is uh, but i didn't know I had an image of myself as a kind of uh, youthful for my you know because I do yoga and i 'm a meditator and I eat organic vegetables so i 'm in pretty good shape you know my chronological age may be whatever you think it is i 'm not going to tell unless you want me to I, yeah. but <laughs> 66. Okay, uh, but your psychological age—that's uh, up to you. Your mind makes up. Uh, my mother—I uh, once re- she was 90, and I referred to her as being 90. She nearly killed me. And my mother is an incredibly loving person. She was never mean to me in my entire life. This was towards the end. Uh, she called me up and she said, "Don't ever refer to my age again as 90." I said, "Okay. How about if we, when I, when I, when your age is necessary, I'll." I'll say 39. You know, so she said, "Okay."
1: Uh, you know,
0: sort of like. Uh, so it doesn't end; it just goes on and on and on. Okay, so that image—it's a collision course—and blah blah blah. And um, I don't want to exaggerate how bad it was; it wasn't that bad, you know. Uh, and then you recover, and then you just—you live your life. But there are other things that happen. I think that's what you're getting at—that uh, are poignant. Uh, as we age, we lose certain capacities, certain kinds of sensitivity. People relate to us differently. Uh, we're treated differently on the job, or we have no job. Uh, we retire, or uh, suddenly uh, many things that used to give us pleasure don't anymore. You know, uh, we, don't enjoy, we don't digest our food as well. We don't enjoy the taste as well. Uh, hey, let's go over and play. we don't want to go to a party. You become a little bit more withdrawn. Uh, you, you want to go to the movies less, whatever it is. And there's a certain poignancy, poignancy and there's a bit of grieving. It, it is a death, you're quite right. I think it's a good word for it. And it's sort of an old way of being that falls away. It's, it's already gone, but you haven't caught up to it. Words, so there's some identification with it. And this is what the Buddha meant. Now, that Tao Te Ching quote, the body has to get stiffer. Yeah, great. While those who are soft, therefore those who are stiff and rigid become disciples of death, while those who are soft and yielding become disciples of life. The hard and stiff break, the soft and supple triumph. Uh, Put in this language, what we're learning is how can the mind become soft and supple pliable, flexible, fresh, young. Krishnamurti at 90 uh, was fresh as a, as a daisy. His body was old at 90. He obviously had the body of a 90-year-old, but at once he would start talking about these things and listening to you, uh, you couldn't keep up with him. It was just tremendous energy. So, But how do you get there? Uh, you would have to practice. It's not to deny the loss or give yourself a pep talk and oh, it doesn't matter, you know, uh, aging is natural and uh, everyone goes through it and blah, blah, blah. Uh, it's that the, you feel the loss and you practice with it. You know, it's the same, uh, it's like, you know, the glum question. Uh, you, you, so that if you, good practice would be experiencing, it's a bit of grieving, isn't it? Okay, now, if you can uh, feel that and practice with it, uh, in the way in which. Do you have a practice? Do you practice? Yeah. Oh, I see. Okay, I, there's a limit to what I can and convey to you. I
2: would, what? I say, the So, I
0: Okay, let me see if I can relate to. Uh, that isn't so important. Let's say what comes up is that suddenly. Uh, you can't do something that you used to, or you have no interest, and you feel like something's been taken away from you. Or you feel a lack of respect in a certain way, you know, others towards you. Okay. And then you see you start to have it towards yourself. You know, you don't feel as valuable, or whatever it is. Now, typically, we don't like to feel that way. What do most people do? They either identify with it, and then they drown in it. They go into self-pity, and they become their mind becomes stiff and old. Because the body has, they're disappointed, hurt, because they still are fight they're comparing. They still want to be a teeny bopper. Okay, and there's no way you can do that, no matter how many, what, liposuctions or whatever it is you, you take. Um, so one extreme is you identify with it and then you feel terrible about yourself. The other is denial. Oh, I don't care, you know, everything's fine. And then you have a sort of uh, what used to be called an old fool you know, people prancing around in Bermuda shorts and, you know, as if they're really trying to do youthful things but in a way that, you know, it sort of doesn't work and you feel badly for them, you know, because they're trying to appear something that is, instead of finding some other uh, useful way of being their age that has dignity and respect and can actually be quite fulfilling. Okay, So the practice is neither. It's not denying it, nor is it getting lost in it, but it's actually uh... being aware of it and if you don't have a practice the word is just going to be a word uh... the attention is there's a hurt there right there's a certain amount of hurt when that happens that hurt is an an event it's energy in the body it can be observed experienced directly without judgment and if you do that it starts to lose its power it falls away and then little by little you're relieved the grieving is over Uh, And then, of course, you use your wisdom uh, to find other ways to use the time that you have on the planet that are fulfilling. You you learn some new things. If you hold yourself to a standard that can't be realized, uh, it's a setup for feeling uh, tremendous suffering. And that's what I meant. It's not all bad news. There's some other things that can replace what you've lost. But if you're attached to what you've lost, uh, and you don't know how to practice with it. It's going to weigh you down. And if you do that with a number of different things, you will. The mind will become stiff, as in this. Do at least the words make sense? Oh, good. Yeah. Please.
2: Um, that's a too general a question, but I'm confused as to how you can experience the
1: joy of something if you're not attached.
0: To it. It's just the opposite. Uh, for example, typically people ask that about, uh, well, when you love someone, of course you're attached. I would say to begin with, that is the normal condition. But there's quite a difference between love and attachment. And the only way to find that out is you have, you have to really pay attention. You could see the difference. And in fact, attachment compromises the love because often it's not love. It's possessiveness. It's this, that, and the other. Um, what
1: about just at a flower? And
0: okay. I'm the flower. Okay. I'm what? I,
1: Absolutely.
0: No. Okay. I, I, I think it's a language thing. Let, let me try. Let's take the flower. It's a very good example. Um, there, there's a difference between non-attachment and detachment. And a lot of people think that the Buddhist teaching is about detachment. And that makes it an awfully dry and unappealing. Why would anyone want to go through life that way? It's sort of you're pulling back and from a distance watching. You're looking at the flower. I don't want to really like you because if I do then uh, you know it'll be what he said attachment and then I'll suffer and, okay uh, whereas non-attachment is an opening up to it to fully experience that flower the, the beauty of it but at a certain point the flower will start to wither and die in fact in Buddhist monasteries typically there are flowers on the altar uh, when we do our job we often have them here and uh, they're allowed to stay a little bit beyond the beautiful part. You know, we let them wilt and stay there a day or two longer. That, that's, it's a teaching. So that, let's say, if you attach to the beauty of the flower, then when it dies, you'll be feel hurt. And you'll say, well, I'm never going to love flowers again. They just go and die on you. They just wilt and they die on you. And so then, oh, no, I don't want to see those flowers. Someone delivers flowers. I, I don't I, Okay. Uh, or you get plastic flowers. You know. Okay. okay. Not too satisfying either. Okay, so what we're learning how to do is, uh, let me make a distinction, the distinction between joy and pleasure. You can use the language differently. I was, this is just how I'm using it. Joy would be that spontaneous, uh, immediate, uh, wonderful feeling of, of the beauty of a flower. Anyone who's a normal, healthy person loves to see a flower or to hear a bird chirp. You, it's an automatic thing. Oh, you just feel good. It does something for This ticker in here okay Uh, but then let's say uh, the flower starts to wilt and it was such a beautiful bouquet so beautifully arranged I've never seen one like that and then you want to repeat it then what you're looking for is pleasure as as I'm using it and it's based on memory it's based on acquisition and, and then you start running around the florist and none of them get it right no I got it in this florist in Cambridge and they just do it beautifully on Brattle Street why can't you do it that way well, this, this is what you said, and it's not what I said. Do, do you see the difference? Okay, so it's, it's opening up to life, it's uh, participating fully, intimately in life, but as things change, uh, that's a fact. It doesn't have to be a problem, unless you make it into a problem. It's a fact that things change. So if you can love the capacity that you have, you know, to get back, okay, and then when it's gone, you have to let it go. If you don't let it go, then... Who are you hurting? You're only hurting yourself. So, do you see that? So, it's that kind of thing. Does it make sense? Yes, it does. Oh, good. I have a question sure. Off
2: on that. Is, is part of um, non attachment when something changes? I mean, I can imagine feeling a sense of grief, even if I've sort of been fully enjoying something, to see it pass. Yes. Is it just being
1: with grief instead of trying to hold on to the thing I believe
0: or Exactly. It would be fully grieving. So let's say, uh, you know, this is, probably everyone in this room is, probably most or all of us have lost people. People have died. Lost them, they haven't lost them, passed away, they died, you know. Okay, so let's say what comes up, let's say if if, uh, someone pricks you, you bleed, no matter how much you've been meditating. Okay, now there may be some people who are so deeply, uh, one of my teachers maintained this about himself. I, I felt a little distrustful of it. Uh, his teacher, who he loved, he studied with him for 20 years. And he said at first, he used to worry when he was a, uh, a young monk, that uh, what will happen when my teacher dies, I'll be alone. Uh, he had become like his father. Uh, and he, but then with, he kept practicing and practicing and practicing. When the time finally came, which was about 20 or more years, uh, and his teacher died, uh, uh, he didn't, it wasn't so painful. He just felt this very quiet but deep appreciation and love and gratitude and he took care of the funeral and so forth. Now, I don't know if he's fully in touch with himself, but let's say it's possible. Most of us, most human beings I know, including people called masters, when someone dies, they feel it. Okay, so it's not to make you f- have a stereotype feeling. You, if you're a, a Dharma practitioner, when someone dies, you must not feel that loss. It's to be honest with what you're feeling. Okay, so, but now, let's say someone dies, who you love, Uh, And then the grieving process is one that's very easy to botch up. You know, uh, sometimes what we call grieving, we're not fully allowing the hurt to uh, come to the surface, to fully express itself, and then to, in a sense, to flower, to really uh, come to its fullness, and then to wither and fall away. So instead, we kind of, uh, it's pinched off and broke. We fight with it a little bit here, then we pull back. Uh, Then we identify with it, and we get into self-pity. Poor me. Uh, that is the grieving I'm talking about is pure. It's a pure sense of loss and pain. You see? So, yes, it's what you said. Uh, we're not trying to program you. It's more uh, learning how to be, it's training in honesty, really. It's training in honesty with what you are actually experiencing, not what you should be experiencing. Does that? Good. And even from this side of the room, my neck is kind of. <laughs> yeah.
1: Right. Was it, I mean, sure, well, it seemed like sort of a universal thing to you mean know, <laughs> this, this awareness of death enhances your uh of life and the suffering is this the focus
0: sometimes. I understand, but you know, I let's just be get practical for the moment. Uh the first time I taught this stuff, I gave a talk I don't remember what I said, but it was on this subject. When the center first opened up, and a big bruiser who's about six four with shoulders like this, sweat pouring down, he ran out in the middle of the talk. And I spoke to him later on in the week, and he didn't want to go near it. He wasn't ready for it. So that theoretically you're correct, but he had a lot of depression in his life. He uh, all kinds. You know, we don't have to go into his biography. But at that point in his life, that was not a skillful thing to do. Uh, now, you might say, well, of course, it shows that that's exactly what he does need to do, because he's so frightened. And that's true, but you don't rub a person's face in things. That is, so what he needed, and we're still practicing together uh, to this day. This was almost 13 years ago. What he needed was more support. He needed to experience more joy, do a lot of metta, loving-kindness meditation. A practice generosity to do things for other people, uh, to bring some happiness here. And then, little by little, you then, when the person's right, they want it on their own, or then it can be a useful practice. So timing is very important. Do you see what I'm getting at? So the
1: individual that
0: knows. Well, uh, some people don't know enough to take, you know, sometimes you have to intervene because you realize the person is being heroic and they can't. you can see that they're not able to handle it and we're not trying to push anyone over the edge because we're playing with powerful energy here, it's not a joke to contemplate aging sickness and especially death so if there's a time in your life when there's been a lot of loss and depression and you're new at the meditation you won't be able to do what I'm talking about probably, it's useful to hear it maybe some seeds are being planted but the day may come when you then feel that you want to take it on and I, I trust that more So. Uh, and evenings like this. Now, what I found when I first, uh, I re- didn't want to teach this. I was practicing it myself for years and not teaching it. Because I was concerned about it, if you open it up and just let everyone come, that you don't know who's there. And uh, so it's very hard to, t- to teach that practice group because I watch very, very carefully. But one of the things that I've learned that I don't have to worry so much is that there's a kind of natural self-selection and people who are not ready for it don't come. Uh, by and large, I've only had to suggest to one or two people over the years, and one or two people on their own, uh, said, I, I don't think this is for me right now. I said, you're right. You know, There are other, so many other practices to do. You don't need to do this one. Uh, so part of uh, wisdom is uh, skillfully uh, guiding your own path so that you do what's creative for you and useful uh, and not do things that are... Then when the person is strong enough, the Buddhist teaching puts tremendous emphasis on self-reliance. But if a person's been very seriously wounded, uh, they're not ready to be so self-reliant, and so there's a lot of support that's important to give. But it's the support that a good parent would give. You know, you help the person get stronger so they can walk on their own, and then at a certain point, they can hear the full teaching and do it. That's an overall attitude. It's not just about death. It's in general, when we, as we get to know people. My teachers did it with me. I was a very intellectual type. They did did different meditations with me because, uh, you know, they had never met anyone who did so much thinking. (laughs) This is Korea. Oh, many thinking. You know, they just uh, everyone else was were uh, were farm boys. You know, who were all all these monks? They were typically 18 years old, 20 years old, and they had worked in the rice paddies. And here comes this guy with a PhD who's questioning everything, who just wants to read books. And the first thing I did was take the books away. But they had never seen a mind like that. Oh, many thinking, you know. Uh, and you know, they were right. So I, they had to give me a different medicine. I was not allowed to read a book for the whole year I was in Korea. It was excruciatingly painful at first, like a drug addict. You know, withdrawal. I didn't read a book for a year. For a Jewish intellectual from New York, that's like killing yourself. <laughs> But it was tremendously helpful. And uh, now what I do read, again, it's like a wonderful thing. It's, ne- it's n- never been the same. You know, It's not like I think that everything is in the book. I love books. I appreciate them. They're a lot more like a nice dessert. Sometimes more than that. But I have no illusion that, the, that I'm going to get free by reading books about freedom. It's just ridiculous. Are you interested in doing this practice? Do you feel somewhat attracted to it? Okay. Yeah. We have time for another question. Please.
1: Um, just a
2: off topic,
0: yeah, I give the same answer anyway. You know that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. So, um, I'm going to spend the next
2: couple of weeks on a project where I um, think a lot about and meanwhile, people have been very
0: brutally murdered. Um, what do you mean, think a lot about...
2: I'm learning about investigating and learning and learning and people, people have been very brutally murdered. And what
0: are you reading? The account of how it's happened?
2: Or oh, I'm talking to people who've been murdered. I see. Um, um,
0: obviously
2: very painful. And, um It's a feeling that what I do with that kind of pain uh, is the usual opinion I'm going know how strange this came. Um some of what's painful is thinking about how people got you all know, that time it has to say and some of and some of it is thinking like, thinking about who would do those things. Um just wondering if you had any
0: I, I need to know more. That is why are you doing that?
2: I'm um, writing an about this to essentially educator like, people that
0: could go down in order to write the article, do you have to sort of... Uh, no, but I, not just the facts. Do you have to empathetically experience what you think ha- they felt like? Because it would be how you think they felt like. No. Well, you, you, I mean, is that a, a necessary part of writing the article? I have a reason, a reason I'm asking. No, that's what I'm getting yes, at. But
2: I wouldn't be writing the article if I, if I
1: didn't.
0: But, yeah, I, mean? I do. Um, in principle, see, let's just go through it and then you'll probably have the answer. Um, <clears throat> what you're finding out about is over, right? These are events that are over. The person is, is already dead, The person who's witnessed it, it's their memory, and you weren't even there. Okay, so one, to start off with, it's very important to be clear about your role in all this. Mm -hmm. Don't get lost in uh, some scenario. The the truth is, you were not murdered, and you were not there. You're somebody who's drawing other people out about their experience. Mm -hmm. Okay, now, that can be a deflating of it, because I'm I'm, uh, keeping you from. I'm, I'm concerned about you not suffering so much. But you may need to, you may want to suffer so much. what in order to write this, uh, you know, to get into it more deeply, probably some suffering, when you hear all this, is, is inescapable, yes. I would think. No, yeah. no,
2: I'm not saying this you not the same I mean, my concern is more to prevent these things from happening again. Right. Because they're going to happen again. Right. Fewer of
1: them. Yeah.
0: Okay. They, let's say they start to talk to you, right? Uh, that will evoke something in you. Okay. So the, uh, it's not that I have some format that you're supposed to fit yourself into as to how to write this, but rather it's like the corpse that I was, that the, my teacher had me sit and just observe it, and I